Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Listeners should refer to the disclaimer in the episode notes and at the end of this podcast. It's long been, I guess, thought of that bonds and equities are sort of moving opposite directions. So it's always good to hold bonds because they tend to rise when equities fall. And that's true to a certain extent. But over time, if you look through a very long period of time, that relationship can be quite unstable. And there are periods where you have bonds falling and equities falling at the same time. So you can't always assume that if you just hold a passive portfolio of bonds, that will save you when equities are down. G'day and welcome back to Equity ASA, brought to you by Australian Shareholders Association. I'm Phil Muscatello. Today I'm joined by Matthew Holberton, National Manager, Listed and Capital Markets for Fidante Partners. Hello, Matthew. G'day, Phil. How are things? Matthew works closely with his clients to find investment solutions within Fidante's suite of boutique asset managers. So just give us a quick overview about how Fidante works, that you work with asset managers that you partner with. That's right. So um, Fidante Partners is the investment management arm that sits inside Challenger. And um, what we do is we partner with high-performing investment teams to help them establish businesses. They might be specialists in equities or in fixed income. And we also help them go out and raise money. We help them with the back office. We help them with all of the non-investment related functions of a business so that uh, these investment teams can focus purely on investing. And we think that's in the interest of investors and it promotes really good alignment, good outcomes. And so you select based on performance and... Culture, performance, um, and also, I guess, the need. Um, You know, is there a need for this type of asset class? What are our investors, what are our Australian clients looking for? So investors are currently facing the challenge of finding attractive income solutions that offer protection from rising interest rate risk. But let's start by talking about fixed income. What is it? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, fixed income is such a... That's a broad term, isn't it? broad term. It's a huge market. It sort of dwarfs the size of the equity market that I Mm. think most of your listeners would be you know, so familiar with. But, um, you know, fixed income, you might hear the terms credit, bonds, etc. These are sort of types of securities within fixed income. They really do drive capital markets around the world. I mean, most businesses and households have a level of debt on their balance sheet. They're borrowing to buy a house. They're they're uh, borrowing from a bank or private lender to finance uh, growth or acquisition. So fixed income, it's a behemoth. And I think everyone should pay attention to what's happening in fixed income markets. The main ones, everyone probably knows, government bonds or, or treasuries. And that's, uh, that's a form of investment where you're effectively lending money to the government or, or the government is on the other side of that transaction. They're effectively borrowing money from you. And in return, they'll 
promise to pay you a coupon along the way, and at the end of the bond term, they repay your principal. For the Australian government, it's a AAA-rated government. That is a very low-risk investment for investors, but at the same time, the yield on that investment would be quite low as well. Credit ratings for countries do vary. The major ones like the US, Australia, Canada, UK, Europe, etc. These are the highly rated ones. And then you've got, you know, say some of the Southern European or South American countries that might have pretty poor um, credit ratings. And, and those government bonds tend to sort of perform a bit like uh, credit securities. And if you go to, say, corporate bonds, that's where uh, companies are issuing bonds to borrow. So if you're an investor in a corporate bond, you're effectively uh, uh, in investing in the debt part of that company's balance sheet. Companies, if they're large enough, they might get their bonds rated by a public agency. So it's a public bond and um, ratings start at AAA and, and go all the way down to C, double B plus and below is going to be considered sub-investment grade. Other terms that are floated around are junk bonds or speculative grade or high yield. They all mean the same thing. It's just bonds that are below that sort of investment grade. Uh, and so, so there's a correlation between risk and return. So if you're looking for a higher return, you've got to take on higher risk. That's right. So yeah, yeah triple B minus and above is considered safer. Uh, but important point to note is that, um, you know, as you go from, say, AAA down to AA and A and the Bs go through to that and all the way down to sort of triple B minus, the risk is not increasing in a linear fashion. So even though the letters or the, you know, the indicators are sort of moving, don't assume that that means the risk is not um, increasing in a more than a more than a linear fashion. So as you go out the risk curve and as you then drop into sub-investment grades, so double B plus and below, your risk is growing almost exponentially and therefore you need better compensation for the risk that you're taking. And that's why you see yields in, in high yield being considerably higher than, um, than investment grade bonds. Um, and then you've got other asset classes like syndicated loans, uh, also sometimes referred to as bank loans or, or leveraged loans. These are tradable loans huge in the US and you know investors can get access to syndicated loans via a number of funds and also in Australia these loans they tend to be floating rate and um, you know they have a sort of a three to five or seven year term but the key point is that because the number of banks have, have participated in in the funding of those transactions there are a lot of participants and mm. um, you can get liquidity in those so they're still referred to as as liquid credit so all of the the asset classes I've just mentioned would fall into that sort of liquid credit bucket because they can be traded. And then below that, you've got illiquid credit. So, you know, what is that? Things like direct lending. So that's when a private lender is, is lending directly to a company and they're, they're holding that loan to maturity. So they might be holding it for three or five years and they own all of that loan and uh, they're not willing or they don't have any desire to sort of trade that with anyone. So there is, yeah, there's no liquidity in that. But as an investor, you can earn a higher, higher premium. It's referred to as the liquidity premium. Mm. And you mentioned floating rate. Does that um, mean that um, the loan itself, the interest that it's paying and the coupon is uh, pegged to the a variable interest rate, like in yeah. home loan, for example? Yeah, that's yeah. right. So actually, I should mention that in all of the, the liquid securities I just talked about, except for syndicated loans, they typically have attract fixed rates and um, you can get floating rate notes as well. But, but yeah, floating rates, they would adjust maybe on a monthly or a quarterly basis depending on the conditions in the uh, of the contract. But um, 
if you've got a floating rate security, you're pretty much immune to interest rate rises and falls. I mean, the corresponding coupon adjusts automatically. Mm. And so your capital value is not affected. But with a fixed rate bond, there is this concept called duration. And what it measures is a bond's sensitivity to changes in interest rates. So the bond price sensitivity changes in interest rates. And it works inversely with interest rates. So as interest rates fall, bond prices tend to rise. As interest rates rise, as we're starting to see now, bond prices tend to fall. And you know, if you've been following fixed income markets lately, you've probably seen pretty horrendous returns from government bonds and, and investment grade bonds more broadly as well, just over the last uh, you know, two years. In fact, I think the government bond index from peak to trough, the global sort of aggregate government bond index is down about 12% peak to trough, peak in the start of 2021. So it's been a, a tough time. And a lot of that, you can explain a lot of that by this sort of duration element of, uh, of sort of return in a bond. But we know that prices can move around face value. And um, if you were to buy a bond at a discount, let's say you were to buy a bond at, uh, let's say, $95, and it was paying that, that 5% coupon, um, and I'm just assuming... On the, on the face value of $100. The, yeah, yeah, yeah. So face value of 100 it was trading the market at 95 It had a 5% coupon, and it had a one-year maturity. If you take into account you've paid 95 you receive a $5 in coupon, and then in a year's time you get paid $100, your actual return over that year is about 10.5%. Mm. And that's your yield to maturity. You were mentioning in your notes about um, capital gains as being a part of a fixed income strategy. Is that what you're talking about? That's there? exactly right, yeah. Phil, yeah. So, because I, I never thought about um, capital gains could be part of yeah, uh, fixed Yeah, no, so people, um, fund managers, uh, you know, direct investors will, will be buying bonds at below face value all the time and, mm-hmm. and if they hold them to maturity they'll um they'll earn that extra sort of capital return so yeah you're right that total return that you're getting out of a bond comes from primarily the income but if you've bought it low and you've sold it high or you've bought it at a discount and you you wait till it matures at par you make a, an additional capital gain and adding those two returns together gives you that that yield to maturity when interest rates are high, most of your return comes from, and most of your risk comes from that, the interest coupon component. And I guess the capital component is quite small. And, you know, so you don't get too big a fluctuation in, in the capital value of bonds. But at, at really low interest rates and at sort of zero interest rates, duration's very high. Your coupon's obviously very low because interest rates are low. And so that, that uh, sort of capital component now, the price volatility component or the duration component of your return is very high. And that's that's where we are at the moment, and we're starting starting to go through an upgrade cycle. But if you looked at, say, the global government bond index, the duration in that is about eight, eight years, and that means that for every 1% rise in interest rates, you'd expect that index to fall by 8%. So something that uh, you know, all investors need to be aware of, because government bonds don't just assume they're defensive because the credit risk is low. There are a number of other risks in fixed income. It's not just credit, it's you know, interest rate risk and also liquidity risk. So that risk, I guess, is best explained by, well, when you want to get your money out of an investment, can you get it at the market price or do you have to actually sort of sell it at a discount or what one might refer to as a, as a sell spread? So, Matt, what's the role of fixed income in a portfolio then? Yes, look, I think it's got a number of 
number of roles. Um, I think for a lot of investors, it's that they want income because <laughs> that's what it says in the title. Exactly. But I mean, it's, it's not as easy. It, it, doesn't, it doesn't sound like it's as easy as yeah, that. Yeah. And, and fixed income, as we've sort of talked about before, there are floating rate securities or investments out there too. So it can be a bit of a misnomer. But uh, yeah, fixed income, we think it should play a, a defensive role in people's portfolios. We think it, it should provide capital stability. Obviously, income is probably the most important part for a lot of our retired listeners. And then lastly, I think a risk diversifier. So something that um, can offset your losses in equities when equity markets are down. Mm. And that's a really important one because it's long been, you know, I guess thought of that bonds and equities are sort of move in opposite directions. And so it's always good to hold bonds because they tend to rise when equities fall. And that's true to a certain extent. But over time, if you look through a very long period of time, that relationship can be quite unstable. And, and there are periods where you have bonds falling and equities falling at the same time. So, mm. you know, I can't always assume that if you just hold a passive portfolio of, of bonds, that will save you when equities are down. So I think it's those three things. One of our, our managers, um, our Daya Investment Management, they have a, a fixed income sort of active ETF that trades on the ASX. It's got a ticker of XARO. They've actually put together a, a defensive fixed income checklist, which highlights, I think, what they think are the most important features of, of fixed income. And So what is that checklist? Yeah, I'll go through that. And I'll just preface this by saying it does sound like active management is really key to this because you can't just sit there and passively watch. Yeah, I believe so. Active management and diversification. Yeah. Because, as I mentioned before, if you just invested in the passive government bond index, you know, a year and a half ago or so, you're down about 12%. And that's because, as I mentioned before, the high level of duration in the index, eight years and very low yields. So what we're looking for, what we think makes a great defensive fixed income fund or investment is one that that can deliver you consistent, positive, absolute returns. So it's not just about, you know, beating a benchmark or beating the passive funds or the, the index. It's about, you know, consistent, positive, absolute returns. Number two would be tight volatility controls. Because, yeah, we want this thing to be quite stable. We don't want to, you know, be having really high returns one month and, and mm. big negative returns another because that tends to scare investors. It's hard to stay in investments like that. It's much easier to stay invested in something that has, has low volatility. And, and, and if you stay invested over the long term, you know, you get the, the benefits of, of the asset class. Number three would be, yeah, that minimal correlation to equities. And that's something that you can, you can test for over time. In the very short time, say days or weeks or even months, they can sort of move together sometimes. So if you look at it over sort of a one-year, two-year period, that's what we're trying to educate investors to sort of look beyond just the, you know, the very short term, think um, sort of two years and beyond. Number four would be highly liquid, especially in times of stress. So I guess you can find out by looking at a fund's track record, looking at their spreads over time, you can inquire, you can do your research there to find how was the liquidity in that fund in the GFC, if it was around then, or how did it perform in that March quarter of 2020. Number five is a bit of a bonus one, but it's inflation protection. I think that's quite topical at the moment, you know, with inflation starting to, you know, get quite high. So does the fund have features that can protect you from rising inflation? And then lastly, number six would be 
tail risk protection. And, you know, what I mean by that, I'm not talking about a dog. Uh, I'm talking about, um, you know, those extreme events that are unforeseen. We might call them black swan events, for those of you who've read that book. Events that do happen. I mean, no one predicted that uh, COVID would happen. No one, you know, not many predicted the size and magnitude of uh, the scale of what happened in the GFC. But those are, those are significant events. And, and are there strategies within the portfolio that can protect in those extreme scenarios that can soften the, the loss. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. You referred previously to private credit. What is that and how can investors access that? Yeah, great question. And it is a growing area. So private credit simply is just non-bank lending to mm. corporations or you know, businesses. And um, traditionally, that sort of corporate lending was dominated by banks. But in the US, if you go back the last couple of decades, with bank consolidation, and I guess post-GFC, you had changes to capital requirements of banks and so forth, you've had this growth in, in non-bank lenders because they're not governed by the same sort of capital requirement issues as, as banks are. So banks have sort of retreated, they've consolidated. They tend to play in this syndicated loan space that I talked about before. So these are transactions that are too large or often too large to be in the sort of private credit space. But yeah, middle market companies want to fund acquisitions, fund growth. You know, 30 years ago, they would have gone to their bank, but typically now they might go to a private lender. We have one in our stable called Aries Management Corporation. They're one of the largest middle market private lenders in the world. So they dominate in the US and Europe, and they've uh, you know recently set up operations in Australia. We have a couple of funds there. One is a, sort of a daily liquid managed fund. Another one is for wholesale investors only, which is a sort of a quarterly liquid fund, but that taps into private credit. You can either access private credit via an unlisted managed fund. Mm -hmm. It might have very limited liquidity. It might be quarterly or it might be sort of annually or every two years or it might be fully closed-ended. You put all of your capital in and, and you have to wait seven or ten years to be able to get it out. Or there may be liquidity events along the way. Or the other way, as I said, is that listed investment trust via the ASX and there are a number that 
sort of operate in Australia. They might be broad corporate lenders and they might focus on, say, real estate because that is quite a large segment in the, in the Australian market. Yep. So Challenger Investment Partners Asset Management offer a, um, a monthly liquid fund that gives you a blend of public and private credit mm-hmm. and that targets sort of cash plus 3%. There is a wholesale-only fund that targets sort of cash plus five, and that holds more private credit because it's you know, extracting more of that liquidity yep. premium there. And then via our um, joint venture with Aries Management Corporation, we formed Aries Australia Management. They have two funds as well, similar in a sense that we have one that is offering or targeting about three to four percent income, and that's a blend of mostly liquid credit. It's sort of the best of liquid credit in the Aries Credit Group. And then there's a wholesale-only fund, which has quarterly liquidity, and it invests in, in a blend of public and private credit, and that sort of targets around sort of circa 6 to 8% pays income. Both of those funds pay income monthly, but yeah, for your listeners, that first one, the 3 to 4% income is a retail fund. The other fund, the 6 to 8% sort of target return fund, that, that is a wholesale-only fund. But maybe your listeners will be interested in an ETF version of those, of the 3 to 4% sort of target return fund and we are looking to make that available as an ETF later this year so that's something to get excited about. You mentioned XARO and um, what are the other ETFs that you've got and what else is in the pipeline? So yeah XARO managed by Ardea and that sort of targets sort of cash or CPI plus two percent with sort of two percent volatility. Uh, We've got XKAP or XCAP as, as we call it internally that's uh, managed by Capstream, one of Australia's sort of oldest and, and largest fixed income managers. That uh, ETF is listed on the SIBO exchange, formerly CHIX. That ETF targets sort of a cash plus 2 to 3% return and has a volatility budget of, of 1.5%. So those are the two that we've got listed uh, today. But uh, we do have a couple in the pipeline. That Aries fund I talked about, the Aries Retail Fund, which is the Aries Global Credit Income Fund that, uh, you know, is targeting sort of 3 to 4% income paid monthly, very low duration. So, you know, predominantly floating rate securities in that, in that fund. Um, so, you know, with interest rate risk, it's very low and also has um, pretty tight volatility controls as well. So that, that one is hopefully coming soon to the market later this year. And then if we look beyond this year, there are some sort of sustainable or ethical or environmental styled active management strategies that we're going to bring to the market as well. So watch this space. Head to fidanteactivex.com.au. So it's F-I-D-A-N-T-E-A-C-T-I-V-E-X.com.au. And we've got a whole host of investor resources there, videos about fixed income and what active ETFs are. And, um, you know, you can subscribe to our updates and find out more information and, and get in touch with me there as well if you want to go through that defensive fixed income checklist. Matthew Holberton, thank you very much yeah. for joining us today. Thanks, Phil. Thanks for having me. And thanks, everyone, for tuning in. Important. Please remember these podcasts are produced to provide information and education, and they're not designed to provide financial advice, nor are they a recommendation to buy shares in the companies featured or discussed. The Australian Shareholders Association does not endorse or favour any specific commercial product or company. Please obtain independent professional advice before investing. We value your feedback and questions. Please contact us at share at asa.asn.au if you have any suggestions for guests or specific questions you'd like answered.